Thank you for downloading this episode of Being Human, brought to you with support from the Royal Anthropological Institute of Great Britain and Ireland. This podcast brings together anthropologists from different areas of the discipline in conversation about topical issues. Please do subscribe to keep up with our latest conversations. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Being Human. If you travel across the coastline now, many small hamlets are covered in concrete, giant seawalls rising. And if you talk to people, you, you often get a profound sense of sadness at the transformations in the landscape in order to protect them. So I always remember driving along the coastline with a local resident uh, to look at seawall construction sites and him saying to me, you know, these may protect our lives, but in doing so, they damage our ways of living, they damage our livelihoods. And without those things, and I quote, it doesn't matter if one lives. This is some of the things that have really struck me in terms of what is changing people's experience of the changing landscapes of the Northeast. That was Andrew Littlejohn speaking of his fieldwork experience in Japan. In today's episode of Being Human, we'll be looking at the topic of disaster. How do people prepare for disasters? How can we mitigate their effects? And how do we use technologies to equip ourselves in times of trouble? We'll be looking specifically at Japan, a country which has frequent natural disasters, and which on March the 11th, 2011, suffered the triple disaster of a tsunami, earthquake and nuclear meltdown, killing nearly 20,000 people and causing long-term devastation for those affected. My name is Laura Harpio-Kirk, and joining me to discuss this topic today are Chika Watanabe, Chika, if you'd just like to briefly introduce yourself. Sure. Um, my name is Chika Watanabe. I'm a senior lecturer uh, at the University of Manchester in the Social Anthropology Department. And I'm interested in the question of how do you persuade ordinary citizens to be prepared for disasters when we can't tell them when it's going to happen? And I've been looking at cooperation between Japanese actors and Chilean actors in Latin America around disaster preparedness. We also have with us Andrew Littlejohn. Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Andrew Littlejohn. I'm an environmental anthropologist and assistant professor um, at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Um, And the main question that's been motivating my research is, how we can live more sustainably in a world damaged not only by disasters themselves, but also the technologies that we develop to mitigate them. And uh, I've been working on this in the context of Japan, but also increasingly in the Dutch context. Finally, we have with us Julia Datoni. Julia, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm a social and legal anthropologist. I'm currently working as a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for Biomedicine, Self and Society at Edinburgh University Medical School. My doctoral research project uh, um, was on, on the living conditions of the Fukushima evacuees who moved to temporary housing facilities after the triple disaster of March 2011. Firstly, uh, it would be really great maybe if Julia could explain to us what exactly happened on uh, 3.11 and tell us a little bit about the sort of complexity of this disaster. The greatest Japan earthquake, commonly known as 3.11 in Japan, refers to three major disasters that uh, occurred off the Pacific coast of northeastern Japan almost a decade ago in March 2011. And these included a magnitude 9 earthquake, tsunami up to 40 meters, and a triple meltdown at the reactors of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. 
The earthquake itself triggered uh, this massive tsunami, which were traveling at uh, 435 miles per hour, which came up to 10 kilometers inland, washing away boats, buildings, and houses, and causing the deaths of uh, about 20,000 people in uh, northeastern Japan. Following to the warnings of the earthquake and the tsunami, nuclear power plants in the region were automatically shut down. However, cooling is needed to remove decay heat after a reactor has been shut down. And at Fukushima Daiichi, the tsunami waves overtopped uh, seawalls and destroyed diesel backup power systems, leading to overheating in the reactors and to three large explosions that generated the radioactive leakage and eventually the triple meltdown. Due to the Fukushima disaster, more than 160,000 people were evacuated, many of which spent several years in temporary housing facilities across Japan. Some are still living in these facilities 10 years on the disasters, far away from their hometowns in Fukushima. And as of today, this huge multifaceted disaster is far from ending. Recoveries of stricken communities is still on the way, particularly in Fukushima, where the decontamination process is still ongoing and will require decades to be completed. Now, contrary to the earthquake and the tsunami, which are natural disasters, Fukushima is generally acknowledged in Japan as a man-made disaster because it could have been prevented if the nuclear power plant was prepared for the foreseeable earthquake and tsunami that would possibly cause such a severe damage. To witness in Japan a nuclear disaster of the same gravity as Chernobyl, which happened in a Soviet country in 1986, was somehow surprising as Japan is a country of global reputation for excellence in engineering and in technology. The displaced individuals from Fukushima with whom I collaborated uh, for my research often pointed out uh, the anthropological shock of the unimaginable to realize that Japan was not, after all, as safe as they had been told. Chika and Andrew, what are the ways that this disaster has impacted on the ways that Japanese people um, think about and, uh, and prepare for future disasters? And, you know, in, in a day to day level, has it really impacted? people's lives beyond the people who were immediately impacted by the disaster. Of course there are big differences across Japan, right? The way in which it was received in Tokyo would be very different from the way in which it was received in the affected regions themselves and very different from the way in which it would be received perhaps in other parts of the northeast like Hokkaido. One of the things that has always struck struck me is the way in which the disaster really sort of made visible to people um, these kinds of previously more or less invisible or unthought structures that were meant to keep them safe and led them to rethink the utility of those things. And this is something that um, a, a, a collaborator of, uh, of uh, Chikas has written about, uh, Kimura Shuhei in Japan, the ways in which since the 1960s, the state had been building sort of protective infrastructures like seawalls in the Northeast, which were meant to just kind of be in the background of everyday life, not something you had to necessarily pay attention to, so that even if you had evacuation drills and other things like that, you had a certain trust that there was something protecting you. And one of the things that has really struck me during my, my work in the region is how much that trust itself um, uh, was lost through the overwhelming of the seawalls, through the failure of these kind of infrastructures to protect people, and the way in which people would then say, 
Maybe the infrastructures themselves meant that we forgot things that we used to know about how to live in an area subject to frequent and recurring um, disasters within our lifetime. And I think that's very different from the way in which the disasters were received in Tokyo, where, you know, you see more kind of um, philosophizing about the unknowable um, causes of the disaster and how perhaps um, one needs to embrace more and greater infrastructure and protection. It's interesting. So I look at actors in Tokyo and Kobe um, in the western part of the country for any listeners who don't know Japan. Um, and I think the experience there and the perception there might be slightly different. So, you know, I, I'd like to ask Andrew and Julia their, you know, their, their opinion. But in my case, even after 2011, I think the feeling amongst disaster advocates is that despite all of these mass disasters that Japan experiences, ordinary people are just not that interested in preparedness in their everyday lives. So if you run a disaster drill, emergency drill in the community, it's usually elderly people who come or you want people to be stockpiling water and emergency food. But it's actually a lot of work to stockpile food and water. So most people, especially a working you know, person, maybe single person you know, in, in Tokyo, they're, they're not going to be really doing that. But I wonder, you know, I wanted to ask Andrew and Julia if that's actually different in Tohoku, um, in the northeast of Japan, where, you know, the impact of the disaster was bigger and there are still remnants of that effect. Actually, my field work, uh, um, it's a little of a hybrid because I collaborated with uh, three NGOs, Japanese NGOs, over six years. And I spent 15 months with evacuees who were in Western Japan, in Kansai. So I also spent um, uh, my time in this region, as you mentioned, for those who are listening to this podcast and do not know Japan, Kansai um, is where... Kyoto, Kobe, and Osaka, for instance, uh, uh, lie. So I could uh, listen both, both point of views, those of my uh, collaborators from uh, Fukushima Prefecture mainly, and uh, those who were living in Kansai and as volunteers were uh, creating different kinds of activities, such as summer and spring camps for the children and uh, counseling, both physical and uh, mental counseling for the elderly and the disabled communities because my fieldwork was mainly focused on the situation of those who are called vulnerable groups, single mothers with young children, the elderly and the disabled. And I was uh, looking at how they coped with different kinds of risk, not just the risk of radiation, but also the risk of loneliness and uh, a lack of, uh, you know, um, for instance, in the, in the case of single mothers, uh, they had to cope uh, with uh, uh, doing three part-time jobs at the same time just to keep the end meet at the end of the month. And then isolation, radiation stigma, and bullying in the case of the children who experienced bullying in schools. So it was, uh, it was complex. And uh, my collaborators definitely mentioned uh, several times how people in Fukushima prefer rather not to talk about radiation. Um, I'm talking more about the Fukushima disaster because it's the one aspect of uh, 311 I've been focusing on most. So I don't know uh, in relation to the tsunami and the earthquake, uh, um, my research questions were not focusing on that aspect. But in relation to the radiation issue, there is certainly a resistance of talking about mentioning, measuring radiation 
and, and this is complex because, uh, as Andrew pointed out, in the aftermath of the disaster, because there was uh, miscommunication of risk and some delay on informing the local populations, uh, mistrust uh, increased among the affected uh, individuals. And uh, now... Um, there is this word in Japanese, fuyo higai, harmful humors, which has been used by the state and the local communities to delegitimate any rumor about the contamination, for instance, in local food. It is a complicated situation, which does not mean that the residents have regained trust in the authorities, but rather more likely they are embracing this idea of forgetting about radiation as a way to regain normality after the nuclear disaster. So the few individuals who have resisted such narratives and continue to talk about and measure radiation are often marginalized from the rest of the community. And something that I have been told several times is that they could have uh, prepared for the risk if they had uh, been informed about the risk uh, uh, prior to the disaster. And then if there was clear information afterwards. So this kind of governance was lacking, uh, according to my collaborators. Uh, you know, one of the things I think we see in in the aftermath of, of 3.11, in the 10 years since the 2011 disasters, is really this tension between, on the one hand, a kind of, if you talk to local people, they'll say, oh, yes, we have to ensure this never happens again, very much a kind of never again rhetoric, but coupled with a profound fear that other people, people around them, are either already forgetting or going to forget. And so then one of the things you also see is a big drive to preserve things that can keep the memory of the traumatic events, the trauma itself, visceral. And one place in which we see this is the drive to preserve um, damaged buildings. And when I say damaged buildings, I don't simply mean, you know, buildings that suffer damage, but places where people died, places, schools where children died during the tsunami, um, government offices where dozens of local workers died to preserve these as monuments that serve to kind of interrupt one's normality in a way that they hope will mean that future generations never are kind of lulled into a sense of forgetfulness. But these sites also have their own complicated politics and can then also be used to promote policies that those seeking to preserve them don't necessarily agree with, like a renewed focus on um, large um, uh, seawall-based uh, protection. It really seems like um, this disaster, in a very big way, highlighted people's uh, conception of their own safety as being something that they're responsible for themselves or something that should be taken care of uh, by the state or by organisations. Chika, I know that you have done work with uh, organisations that have... Uh, implemented sort of novel techniques of getting people to be prepared for uh, disasters. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So since 2016, I've been uh, trying to understand on the one hand, how do you convince ordinary citizens to be prepared you know, among disaster advocates? What, do they, what are the strategies they use? Um, and on the other hand, I'm interested in the forms of international cooperation around that. Um, so I've been looking at the training programs that the Japanese aid agency called JICA that they implement in Kobe. And so I've been, you know, because Julia mentioned, you know, these disasters, a lot of them, the mass disasters that hit Japan are thought to be unimaginable. 
So how do you convey the skills to prepare for an unimaginable disaster? Um, especially when a lot of the lessons in Japan are, yes, some of it is infrastructural te and technological, but it's also about this embodied form of being prepared. Um, they're really taken by this particular technique and teaching children, primary school age children, to be prepared for disasters. And this draws on a nonprofit organization called uh, Plus Arts. They engage in different games that teach them how to basically how to survive the first 72 hours on their own or in collaboration with other children or other people around them. So Plus Arts has this game called Namazu no Gakko, which means a school of catfish, <laughs> literally. Um, and you have three children, at least three children playing. And you have an adult, um, and I should have printed out a picture or something, but the adult puts up a picture. It might be a, a, a picture or you know, a cartoon a drawing of, uh, of a scene after an earthquake, and there's a man who's trapped under the drawers. And the question is, you know, what items can you use to help this man? And each child has a set of cards, and the cards might be a piece of rope, uh, a long piece of wood, uh, a forklift, an umbrella, a handkerchief, you know, whatever. And the children have to propose like one item. And at the end, the adult facilitator would, you know, bring up the different answers and each answer has a different number of points. And this is based on research that um, some, you know, university researchers and class art staff conducted with survivors of the 1995 Kobe earthquake. And these are the items that survivors themselves said was useful in these specific kinds of scenarios. This method has been really popular, not only among Japanese and uh, Chilean disaster advocates, but when I you know, attend these training programs, people from all over the world, you know, these disaster experts from Sri Lanka or, you know, the U.S. or wherever, you know, they find it, they, they're very taken. And so they've replicated it in different countries. Um, you know, on the one hand, this focus on children to prepare them for mass disasters. And on the other hand, this use of playfulness, this use of play to convey a really terrifying, potentially really terrifying experience. This focus on children is really, really interesting. And what can you uh, say about, you know, what it tells us about people's uh, belief in the state as a um, as like the first uh, response or the first sort of protective um, barrier in, in terms of disaster? I think on the one hand, yes, focusing on children and tasking the work of preparedness on households through the children is means that the state had, can buy time because the message from the COVID earthquake that government officials and disaster advocates keep repeating is that when the disaster hit COVID in 1995, all the roads were down, the infrastructure was down. So the ambulances, the, you know, the firefighters, they couldn't come right away. And so 80% of survivors were helped by their neighbors um, and their family members. And so the message is, we have to rely on each other. We have to rely on ourselves and on each other. We can't wait for the state to come because if there's a mass disaster, they just won't be able to come. And so there's this acceptance that the state is limited in those instances. The idea of empowering citizens to be prepared is premised on the fact, on the idea 
that the state won't be able to come. This focus on children is an extension of that, right? But, you know, I talk about it as buying time because I think the expectation, at least in Japan, is that the government and the state actors will eventually come. It's not a completely neoliberal, you know, landscape where you don't expect the government to come at all. Right, you expect them to come in 72 hours, or they say maybe seven days, if it's one of the big ones that's coming. Um, and the second thing is that I think focusing on children, it's interesting because, especially in the context of an aging society, of a society where there are more and more single person households, what does it mean to focus on children?、Um, it's leaving out a lot of households that don't have children. Um, you know, single person households, whether it's a young person or an elderly person.、Um, so then you are leaving very big parts of the population not engaging in the prepare, like the strategies are not addressing those people. So I did research in Japan、um, as well. And I remember、um, that people still have this feeling of、uh, that there's. Well, there's going to be another big impending disaster. And one of the ways that people were sort of preparing themselves for、um, this impending disaster was through technology. So it was through things like Twitter,、um, checking websites of、uh, tide levels.
And I was wondering, Julia, do you have um, anything that you can tell us about the sort of technological uh, response to um, this preparedness? Perhaps I could talk about, uh, again, the, the case of Fukushima. Uh, in the case of the nuclear disaster, some locals equip themselves with uh, Geiger counters to measure the radiation levels in their neighborhoods, and also some radiation laboratories were created uh, soon after 3.11 to provide data on the contamination of food and soil and dust to the residents living in the most contaminated zones. Um, initiatives such as uh, the Minano data site uh, emerged. This is a non-profit volunteer group which involved uh, 4,000 citizens who took uh, food and soy samples to investigate contamination in uh, 17 uh, regions of uh, um, eastern Japan and started in October uh, 2014 and sent uh, these to a network of 30 citizen radioactivity measurement laboratories located in different parts of Japan from uh, Hokkaido to Kyushu. And the group produced also two reports, one in Japanese and the other in English, um, which is titled Citizens Radiation Data Map of Japan, Grassroots Movement Reveals Soil Contamination in Eastern Japan in the Wake of Fukushima. According to these reports, uh, um, the thousands of measurements determined that the radioactive contamination is obviously not limited to Fukushima Prefecture, but it does include uh, places beyond Fukushima. These kinds of initiatives emerged as, uh, again, delayed co communication in the aftermath of the disaster and widespread mistrust towards the authorities led many um, of the residents to doubt that the information provided by the state were reliable and something that was different uh, uh, in comparison with uh, Chernobyl, which happened uh, in 1986. We didn't have uh, social media, as Laura pointed out. We didn't have smartphones and it was a Soviet country where information was kept inside. Uh, so a difference uh, that is huge with Fukushima is that uh, indeed the residents could uh, enable themselves to draw a line between what they think is safe and is unsafe thanks to these new technologies. They created these networks, communicated online between each other, um, sending uh, their measurements, creating their own radiation maps, purchasing these Geiger counters, which um, in Japan, also similar technologies called air counters, like smaller, 4,000 yen. I also purchased one during my fieldwork because it was just handy to, to see how it worked for my collaborators. Everything became very accessible uh, for them. Um, and I visited also radiation laboratories where they were using machines from Belarus, which is uh, a country that... Uh, had to cope with uh, most of the contamination from Chernobyl because the power plant was uh, on the borders between Ukraine and Belarus. And at the time of the accident, the wind was blowing northeast. So uh, some of the districts in Belarus, uh, especially Gomel, were particularly polluted. And they created mach machine after the Chernobyl disaster that now have been purchased in Japan for uh, about, I've been told by my collaborators, like 15,000 euros that they had to collect uh, together to purchase this item and do the radiation themselves. And these are not people who had any pre-existing knowledge on the issue of radiation, but they uh, were collaborating with some uh, independent scientists and uh, um, NGO volunteers. And then, uh, again, using these technologies to equip themselves to make uh, a decision, you know, by themselves to self-manage their lives 
And there were a few episodes that contributed to increase mistrust toward the authorities. Uh, the case of the coastal area of Namie, which was devastated by tsunami and the entire population was ordered to evacuate on the morning of March 12, uh, 2011, since the city is located within the 20-kilometer um, exclusion zone radius uh, from the nuclear power plant. Um, given no guidance from Tokyo, town officials in Namie led the survivors of the tsunami and other residents toward the north, uh, believing that winter winds would uh, be blowing south and carry in that direction the radioactive materials from the explosions of Fukushima Daiichi. Then for three nights, the evacuees stayed in a district called Tsushima, where the children played outside and parents used water from uh, a mountain steam to prepare meals. Town officials would learn only two months later that actually the, the winds had been blowing directly towards Tsushima. Uh, detailed forecast by Speedy, uh, this uh, is a very important technology who can uh, uh, detect where the, um, the radioactive plume, as it had been called, but the radioactive materials that were generated from the three explosions at the nuclear power plant were being brought by the wind. So there is this new technology called Speedy, a computer system, had informed the national and prefectural governments about the exact direction of the radioactive materials carried by the wind. But this information was not disclosed to town officials in order to prevent a panic, it was told afterwards. And the mayor of the city, Tamotsu Baba, during an interview with the New York Times later said that the decision to keep such information secret to his community was akin to a murder. And this was not the only example of local mayors who blamed publicly on social media the state. For instance, on March 24, 2011, Minami Soma Mayor Katsunobu Sakurai shared a 12-minute-long video on YouTube lamenting the scarcity of information received from the government and a general feeling among the citizens of Minami Soma of being abandoned by the authorities. Many among my collaborators from Fukushima felt that they had been manipulated. Uh, some used the word brainwashed um, brainwashing in, uh, in Japanese English for decades to believe that the nuclear power plant was uh, Anzen. Uh, so Anzen means safe in Japanese. And they refer to this myth, the Anzen Shinwa, the myth of safety. Large-scale institutional activities that have promoted nuclear power plant in post-war Japan have built on this myth and uh, have made... Uh, uh, people believe in this safety and also in this preparedness in many ways, as it has been told. The rise of social media, like you, you mentioned, YouTube and Twitter has yeah, really allowed people to um, share their kind of uh, feelings of mistrust, but also as a way to gather information and uh, feel prepared on an individual level as well. So I think it's been a really fascinating sort of intersection. It's been nearly 10 years since the disaster. Um, what do you think people have learned? Has Japan changed as a society since, uh, since you know, the 311 disaster? Or do you think things in some ways are still the same or changing very, very slowly? I mean, I think as I mentioned, you know, amongst the people that I study, there is a sense that things haven't changed that much, even though there's this talk of the impending big um, earthquake that's probably coming. And uh, there's still, you know, people have other things to worry about, like getting a job or going to a job. And so there's still, I think, some, re not resistance, but just disinterest in incorporating preparedness in people's everyday lives. Because as I mentioned, it's, it's actually a lot of hard work 
you know, um, keeping track of things in order to be prepared, making sure you know your evacuation route and all of that. In a similar way to how people talk about COVID 1995, that a lot of people, you know, have forgotten. I think that there is this feeling that people are starting to forget. But, you know, one of the things that I find interesting, and it made me think when Andrew was talking about, um, you know, this commemorating or this capturing of the trauma, there are a lot of disaster museums around Japan, and I visited quite a few in the Kansai region, so in Kyoto and Osaka and Kobe. Um, and one of the interesting things is when you talk to people there, there are ordinary citizens who experience the Kobe earthquake and they, st- they tell you their experience of being there. Um, and there are studies that have been done about, you know, the role of these storytellers who are survivors. And some of the things that they say contradicts um, sanctioned or state messages of preparedness. Um, so, for example, there's an article by a Japanese disaster scholar where, uh, you know, the, 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 the official message is if you live in a house and, you know, you should sleep on the first floor or second floor in the American version, I suppose, in the upper floors, because if there's a, an earthquake, you will probably you have a higher chance of surviving if you sleep there. But then the storytellers, when they're telling the children or the visitors to the museum, they say, well, like, I know people who survived sleeping on the ground floor. I know people who died sleeping on the upper floor. So you can't really, you know, <laughs> um, and they muddle the message sometimes. And so I think there is a tension between memorializing efforts and disaster preparedness efforts. Um, and I think, you know, we need to pay attention to that tension because, you know, as Andrew or Julia probably know, people are talking about experiences of disaster that don't fit the, you know, the authoritative messages of how to be prepared. In the Northeast itself, quite a lot has changed. But one thing I to follow up on just there on these kind of these um, official authoritative messages and how they intersect with commemorative practices. One thing that has changed, I think, and I have I have a, a paper forthcoming on this is um, the way in which the use of not just disaster museums but preserving damaged buildings in situ as a kind of political technology, maybe we can call it, has also spread. And so one of the ways in which we see that is that before 311, before the 2011 disasters, you would sometimes see scattered bits of damaged buildings preserved, but for the most part, not the case. And now when we look at, say, the 2016 Kumamoto earthquakes, we see, and quite literally, the local government um, proposing to um, preserve dozens of damaged buildings and using this language that really became popular after the 2011 dis- uh, disasters shinsai eko kind of um, relics or remnants of the of the disaster and so this ways in which um, um, objects damaged during disasters in situ become part of the political or symbolic landscape i think is to some degree changing or these kinds of if you like the lessons taken from 2011 about their utility as Um, symbolic or political objects has been spreading. In the disaster regions itself, in the Northeast itself, of course, one of the things that has happened is the dramatic acceleration of the population collapse. Um, In some places, you saw population collapse by maybe a third in the years or or even half in the years um, immediately following the 2011 disasters. For the most part, um, while in some areas this might have been 
ameliorated slightly. In many cases, the drop in population has been permanent. And one of the ironies of the situation, and there's a um, a nice uh, article by a Japanese disaster scholar on this, um, we see a paradox in reconstruction in which the areas that have had some of the largest kind of concrete works, big new seawalls, huge new infrastructural facilities have had some of the worst rates of return. And he calls this the reconstruction paradox. And I think it illustrates nicely how, in many ways, attempts to protect people from the next disaster, because of course the end of one cycle is always the beginning of the next, um, have in some ways accelerated the ongoing depopulation of Northeast Japan. They're not the primary reason, but they certainly have contributed in places to it. I think, Angie, you also um, you know, mentioned um, you're interested in this kind of second order or secondary disasters. Yes, very much so. And this is language, the, the idea of a second order disaster is something, a concept that predates the 2011 disasters. It's been used to talk about Hurricane Katrina in the United States, for example, and the extremely uh, deleterious effects of the way the recovery was handled um, in ways that really exacerbated um, the suffering, particularly of African-American communities. But in the case of Japan, yes, this, and in, in, in Japanese too, Daini no Saigai, um, we hear this kind of phrasing. And I think there's definitely a sense uh, among um, many scholars who've studied the, the, the aftermath of the Northeast and certainly many residents that reconstruction itself has been a sort of disaster. Um, as in something that has itself caused profound damage to their ways of living, to their social networks, to their um, emotional and physical health, and to their prospects for a future in areas that were already, as I've already said, suffering from the long-term effects of depopulation and the kind of economic concentration in the cities. Well, relating to what both Chika and also Andrew said, uh, Japan is unfortunately, like Chile, at great risk for future natural disasters because of its uh, geographic location on the Pacific Rim um, and also because of its rapidly aging population, uneven distribution and shortage of medical resources, uh, particularly in regional rural communities and an overburdened public health insurance system. All these problems have highlighted after 3.11 the need for a highly prepared and effective disaster response system, which needs still to be further implemented, uh, as it has been mentioned, this second disaster that came from reconstruction is indeed a recurrent narrative um, in the local stories of 3.11. So what has been told uh, before um, is before uh, in the past, big disasters or crises tended to be left as unprecedented, unexpected, unforeseen, unmanageable. However, uh, a great lesson we learned pro possibly from 311 is that nowadays disaster can be managed effectively, transparently, they can be accountable and are great governance locally, nationally and globally from older phases of preparedness, prevention, risk reduction and mitigation and when occurred by emergency responses for relief and recovery and the uh, um, wise reconstruction joint with the communities post-disaster. So a great thing I learned from my uh, field work with these displaced communities from Fukushima, displaced individuals, is that uh, a better communication would really make a huge difference and joint policy 
between the local affected uh, individuals and uh, uh, authorities would really change, uh, you know, also this relationship of trust. And um, a useful lessons that we have learned from 311 can be applied not only in Japan, but also in other countries. So we should learn from 311. There is also some some positive uh, uh, outcome from the disaster, uh, possibly, hopefully. And again, joint policy making, I think, would be a great uh, first step uh, toward a better um, disaster preparedness and also response to these major disasters, because they obviously um, will happen again, unfortunately, uh, and we need to be prepared. Now we're all going through this major disaster of the coronavirus, and it has been interesting to see how Japan has, has responded to that. One thing that's been very interesting to observe is the way in which coronavirus um, kind of activates anxieties that travel along cultural lines with it, so to speak, by which I mean something like Golden Week, which for those not familiar with um, the ja uh, with Japan is a time of year when people in the cities will pack the whole family into the car and head off to the countryside uh, to visit their parents, grandparents, etc. can become suddenly a moment of extreme anxiety because what could better spread coronavirus than everyone in the cities suddenly emptying out into the countrysides where perhaps capacity to deal with it is, is less. But I think that that also raises a, a kind of bigger issue about the way in which we can think coronavirus in dialogue with other kinds of disaster, right? And one of the major, if, uh, the major arguments of disaster anthropology over the years has been that there's no such thing as an entirely natural disaster, right? That disasters always travel along or split or work with existing social, cultural, political fault lines in a society. And the way in which something like Golden Week as a phenomenon can become um, fear, feared as a, a vector of the coronavirus also reminds us how the virus itself has spread through hitching a ride on our international trade networks, tourism networks. Um, uh, the way it's spread uh, has very much been a function of our global political economy. And on a different kind of scale and with different kinds of consequences, I see certainly anxiety about that being replicated within Japan itself. And also relating back to what Andrew said about Katrina, uh, another thing that uh, coronavirus has highlighted is how this kind of disaster impact differently different uh, groups. Uh, for instance, the BAM community, the BAME community, was uh, um, has been coping with the disaster in a different way as other communities did, because obviously there are pre-existent social inequalities and financial difficulties that some individuals have to face, while others uh, do not, uh, for several reasons. And also another aspect of the coronavirus pandemic that has not perhaps uh, been such on a focus, but it should be, is the mental health impact that the disaster is having, um, especially on these communities who are more vulnerable, but also on others, because everyone is coping with uh, the pandemic uh, as they can. And it's very challenging. These are unprecedented circumstances where we have to rethink our way of living, uh, working, and also socializing to just uh, briefly answer your previous question about uh, preparedness in Japan, just uh, 
speaking, uh, talking, chatting through Skype with my friends there. Uh, I've been told, as Chica mentioned, that they have not been prepared <laughs> at all. And some of the concerned individuals would avoid, uh, for instance, going to Hanami during uh, the April and May uh, cherry blossom season, which is beautiful. And usually people uh, gather in parks and have these amazing picnics uh, with uh, a view and sake, of course. Uh, and it's very uh, is, is an amazing experience uh, that everyone who lives in Japan want to do every year. But some people wouldn't go, some others would go and not wear a mask. So it was, again, uh, up to the individual level to choose how to behave. And part of the reason why uh, Japan maybe have coped uh, um, better than other countries is that in the past they had to cope with other coronaviruses, the SARS, for instance, uh, out, outbreak and uh, uh, this also um, habit of wearing a mask and uh, being very hygienic conscious. Kirezukina uh, type is very common in Japan, so this is another uh, perhaps factor that helped the country. But definitely, I would uh, from just the my chats with my friends, I wouldn't uh, say there was much preparedness. One thing I'd like uh, to to add. We have this paradox in Japan where, on the one hand, sort of trust in kind of what, what uh, some designers call grey infrastructure, kind of big concrete walls and other things like this as a means of protecting people. Trust in those fell, but at the same time, um, they've been built on an ever greater, more widespread scale. And how this has had quite profound effects for local people, often very negative effects on their, their lives, their livelihoods, um, their um, emotional and mental health. And I'd like to just kind of link this in closing to a kind of a, a bit of a bigger point about the politics of protection. And I'd like to cite very briefly uh, another example by some research by Lizzie Arena, who's currently a, a, a PhD for, um, researcher at MIT. And she's written about how in Bangkok, uh, the King's Dyke, which some of you may have heard of, the King's Dyke is a similar kind of structure, gray, infrastructure built to protect the Bangkok metropolitan area from flooding. But it does so by displacing flood water into outer surrounding uh, poorer districts. And when there was a huge flood in 2002, this led to huge um, riots, essentially, in which people who had had water displaced into their homes in order to protect the wealthy financial kind of heartland literally attacked, attacked the walls. And Yurina ends on something that I think is really important for all of us thinking about the politics of protection, which is that we always have to acknowledge that how we try and protect ourselves, how we try and prepare ourselves, are always as much social and political as they are technological issues. And if we don't, as Yurina writes really starkly at the end of this article, um, talking about the King's Dyke in Bangkok, we'll have to build infrastructures like there that need to be protected by men with guns. We didn't mention it, but uh, the northeastern region of Japan, Tohoku, uh, so Miyagi, Iwate, and Fukushima are the poorest region in the country, and the communities are mostly um, basing their economy on farming and fishing. So it is impossible. It is important to keep in mind that uh, uh, the local economy has been particularly affected badly by the 
the disaster because of pre-existing social vulnerabilities, economic differences. These are always uh, the most vulnerable communities who are bearing the risk, often without knowing about the risk. Preparedness as much as response is relying on existing, you know, heteronormative or and middle class assumptions of what a household looks like. We all have talked about preparedness, response, they all hinge on existing social, political, economic structures that are not necessarily equal. And I think this conception of what is a household, what is a kinship network, you know, all of those very anthropological questions, I think, become relevant here. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Chika, Julia and Andrew for being on the podcast today and, and you know, talking about this really, really important topic. Um, I think you've all shown us really interesting insights into it. So on that note, I think that's where we'll have to leave it for today. This podcast was recorded remotely during 2020 and therefore we apologise for any reduction in the audio quality. Today's episode was presented by me, Laura Harpio-Kirk, produced by Jennifer Kearns and myself, and brought to you with the support of the Royal Anthropological Institute of Great Britain and Ireland. It was edited by Antonia Gamma and Deanna Mitchell. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we covered in today's show, you can check out the notes and links accompanying the episode. And please do subscribe to our podcast to keep up to date with our latest conversations. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you access your podcasts. So that's it for this week, but please do join us next time. 